All right, welcome. Welcome, everybody. It is a real pleasure to see you all here. Uh, welcome back, those of you who last week were at Summer Sanctus. Did you have a good time? Oh, good as that, right? I heard, I heard that it was like the best ever. This was the first one that I haven't been to. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Um, uh, we've got one or two new faces. You're most welcome. Glad you could join us. Um, uh, you are joining us uh, in the middle of a series of three Bible, well, at the end of a series of three Bible studies entitled A Vision for Deacons, um, which is prompted by circumstances that I'll outline just to remind you all again in a moment when we've prayed. But um, uh, we have been looking principally at 1 Timothy chapter 3 last week, and before that we looked at Acts chapter 6. We'll be in 1 Timothy 3 again. And I think the best thing to do is for me just to jump in, lead us in prayer, and then once I've prayed, I will recap where we're going, and that will lead straight into what we're actually going to talk about tonight. Just a quick administrative note for those of you who are at home. Um, the time stamp on the email that contains the PDF version of the handout you'll need for tonight is quite recent. So... Uh, probably about half an hour ago or less. So uh, do check your inboxes because it will be really helpful if you had a copy of this handout. Um, it's actually six pages. Um, yeah. Taking the environment by storm in all the wrong ways. But I, I hope it will be worthwhile. I think it will be worthwhile. Um, and um, yeah, with that, why don't I lead us in prayer and then we'll jump straight into um, tonight's Bible study. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we are grateful to you for the staggering privilege of being united with Christ in his death and resurrection and as members of his body being given the privilege of serving in the body as vessels wherein are located those gifts that Jesus by his spirit has given the church and as we're thinking tonight about the ministry of deacons we pray that you would stir within all of us the godliness and maturity that we see depicted in the scriptural pattern for these men. And we pray that from our number will arise men who are able to take this office for the good of all of us in the church in years to come, that you would continue to bless our current deacons and add to their number so that the gifts of every member here at All Saints and indeed um, new gifts to people who are present beyond our walls may be uh, brought to uh, fruition, flourish, and grow wonderfully for the good of the church, the good of the world, and the glory of the name of Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. So just to remind you of the, the context that gives rise to this, actually before I do that, um, huge thank you um, Sam and Tate for hurriedly stapling these handouts together, and to those of you who arrived on time to put these tables out and chairs out tonight, um, administrative hiccup. And really grateful to you guys. Thank you. Um, a reminder of the context for this. Uh, we have been blessed wonderfully with growth here as a church, and we're growing at something over 20% a year, a little faster than that, I think, frighteningly enough, um, and have been for a couple of years, which is creating lots of new opportunities uh, beyond our walls with um, hopes, at least, for future church plants, maybe quite soon, certainly, I pray, in years to come. But actually, even within our walls, we're seeing a full sanctuary with 270-odd people and then sometimes 100 and something folks in here on a Sunday morning. And we have at present the grand total of a majestic four deacons. And they are a majestic four deacons. They are truly wonderful guys. They're great, great 
guys. And yet, uh, four deacons for a church of that size, as any, any <laughs> half-sane pastor will tell you, ain't nowhere near enough. And so, really, we're, we're looking to our own interests, as well as those of Jesus Christ, to slightly um, butcher uh, uh, what Paul says in, relation, in, in the letter to the Philippians. We want, we want to grow the next generation, or two, or three. And uh, at the same time, wonderfully, the scriptural pattern for the maturity and godliness required of men who serve in this formal office is actually a very good pattern for all of us to aspire to, men and women of whatever age, whether or not you're ever going to serve in this role. And tonight in particular, I'm going to be asking you to exercise more creativity than usual in transposing some of the specifics we're talking about to your particular situation. Because today we're talking about um, the qualifications for the diaconate that pertain to the deacon's household and wife and children. And some of you are children, or <laughs> so you're not, not married. Uh, others of you um, are not married, though you're adults. Um, others of you may be married but don't have children. Um, and so I don't want to keep uh, belaboring the point that, um, for example, some of the character traits we'll explore in relation to deacons' wives. Obviously, they are commendable character traits in any woman and in other ways in men as well. So I, I trust and hope that you can use the sanctified creativity uh, of, of a biblical mind, biblically shaped mind, to kind of make the connections for yourself where necessary so that on this occasion we can really talk in as focused a way as we possibly can about these particular requirements, which turn out to be really demanding and really important. Uh, speaking of demanding, that's the first on the list of things we noticed in Acts chapter 6 when we were looking in the first uh, session in this um, little mini-series. These are not really deacons. They're sort of proto-deacons. They're doing deacony sorts of things, even though they're not formally called deacons. And at Acts 6, of course, was a very early stage in the church's life. Famine in Jerusalem... Uh, Grecian and Hebraic widows disputing over the distribution of food and men were appointed to oversee that distribution and make sure it was done equitably and wisely. And the task was demanding, unglamorous, involved delegation and oversight and therefore managing people. Uh, There were some significant qualifications relating to the spiritual maturity of the people. And I like to summarise what we see there with the the kind of take-the-wheel illustration. I'm just looking at that uh, third bullet point under recap. Um, somebody you can trust to take the wheel in a crisis if you need to walk away, which is kind of what the apostles did in Acts 6. We're going to give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Take the wheel, guys. And that's what they did, and they did it wonderfully. And at the end of that short section in Acts 6, you've got one of those wonderful reports of the church continue to grow, which they, they punctuate the book of Acts Uh, And it's indicative of when something goes well. You have a crisis, it's resolved in a good way, and then the church continues to grow. That's how the book of Acts kind of (coughs) makes its uh, progress. Then last time we looked at the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, uh, 8 to 10. And I'm going to read them in a second, so I won't go through them. Uh, But today we're going to come to the second paragraph, as I um, paragraphed it there in the handout for you, uh, which you will very readily see um, is uh, broken down quite nicely and neatly into three areas Uh, of a deacon's relationships, really, a prospective deacon's relationships, wife, 
well, I say wives, because not, not because you should have more than one wife. In fact, you shouldn't anyway. But um, I just wrote wives. I don't know why. Um, but it says wives in verse 11, so that's probably why, actually. Uh, household and children. So let me read this text. Then I'm going to make some comments on it. We'll talk, I might, might talk for a while. If you've got any questions at any point, as ever, stick a hand in the air and we can pick those up. And then at the end, I hope we'll have a fair amount of time for you to reflect and talk together. Uh, and maybe we'll all talk back together about some of the questions that are set out in the last four pages of the handout. And just a reminder, this handout and the two previous ones, please keep them. Because it may be that next month or next year or in a couple of years... I'm going to give you a call and say, hey, listen, I'd, I'd love to sit down with you and your wife and can, can we talk about how you found this deacon uh, training program, the Vision for Deacons? And, let, and let's talk through some of these specifics and it would be great if you have your notes. So put it in wherever you file really important paperwork, you know, like um, letters from your pastor and bank statements and stuff. And then we may come back to it, maybe very soon. All right, so 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. Here goes, deacons likewise... The likewise harks back to the qualifications for presbyters at the start of the chapter, or or, um, uh, uh, overseer, it says. It's the same role. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first and then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Verse 11, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so you can see it behooves us to make some observations about wives of deacons and then over the page some space to make some notes about the household and and children. So wives first, you notice that there are um, four distinct qualifications. The wives of deacons, likewise, Paul says, must be dignified, not slanderous, but sober-minded, Uh, faithful in all things. And so one of the things we're going to need to do is to look closely at what that means. But before we even get to that, I I just want to revisit a question which has been asked before and which it would be good just to get some clarity on to make sure we're all on the same page. Some have argued that this text refers not to the wives of deacons, but to deaconesses. So um, uh, women who hold some kind of formally recognized office in the church. And it is possible that in the early church there were some who held some kind of, let's call it a role, that was kind of noted in some way. Um, well, maybe Phoebe um, in Cancrea, Romans 16.1, we'll may come to that in a minute. Um, but it doesn't seem to me plausible to think that Scripture encourages women to be ordained as deacons or that deaconesses is a role that we should recognize in that way, or certainly that this text refers to female deacons. And I want to briefly explain why, and what we'll see is that comes out of this 
is something which highlights why it's so important that it refers to wives and why the wives have such a significant role to play. So this isn't just a kind of dotting the I's exegetical excursus. This actually has real significance, practically speaking. So first, a, a couple of reasons why you might think that this refers to women holding the office of deaconess or something like that. In Romans 16, verse 1, Phoebe is described as a deaconess of the church in Cenchreae. And then secondly, right here, you've got the, literally, it's women or the women likewise. And so some people have surmised that it, it's just referring to a kind of female version of the same thing, and then there's qualifications for it. So you see how the logic runs. You've got um, uh, uh, overseers in verse 2, deacons likewise in verse 8, deaconesses likewise in verse 11. That's how the logic runs, and likewise, likewise kind of marks the parallel. Well... You can see why you might think that, but I want to argue that's not the case. So first up, like I said, the, the term here isn't deaconess. It just says women. And if Paul had wanted to identify a particular role for women, if the Spirit of God had wanted to make it perspicuous or clear to us, given that it's nowhere else mentioned with the qualifications, it would have been extremely easy for him to emphasize that there's a kind of formal role here simply by using the feminine form of the same noun uh, for deacon. And he doesn't do so. He doesn't do so. Moreover, if they're deaconesses, there's certainly nothing like a parallel version of the male ones because the qualifications are really so very different. Now, you'd expect that, actually, given what Scripture teaches about men and women in general. Um, but it, it really strikes against the idea that you've got, you know, here's an office that both men and women can do equally, equally well. That we, we do have churches, even um, uh, evangelical, reformed churches in this part of the world and elsewhere in the world that, that basically have an office of deacon that men and women can be in. And, and there's no really significant distinction made between them. I think that's just a mistake. And even if this says deaconess, which it doesn't, the qualifications are so different that it at least indicates that the roles ought to be. Um, third thing to point out is, just going back for um, back to Romans um, 16, 1 for a second, we saw last week that the term uh, deacon, diakonos, literally servant or minister, one who ministers, you might say, not minister in the sense of ordained pastor, can be used very flexibly. It can be used of all Christians, Jesus is described as a diakonos. Paul describes himself as a diakonos. Um, the, the term diakonos is used very, very widely without necessarily referring to the office. And so the fact that Phoebe is called a, a diakonos, or a female, is conjugated, um, uh, sorry, declined in the feminine form, um, doesn't indicate that she held the office. It, it, it could just be, and I think it is, singling her out as a particularly noteworthy and servant-hearted member of the congregation. Fourth, and this is getting back into 1 Timothy 3, just look at the logical flow. I've, I've shown you this before, but this really makes it very hard to imagine that the, um, the female deacons are in view, because if they are, you've got verses 8 to 10, qualifications for male deacons. Verse 11, qualifications for women, 
deacons, if that's what you thought it was. And then verse 12 onwards, you've got back to the men again. So it's kind of out of order. If, if you were specifying female deacons as a distinct office, it would make much more sense to say, okay, overseers, deacons, female deacons. But actually it goes overseers, deacons, women, back to deacons again. And it makes it look like the, the women have some role in relation to the male deacons, which indeed they do. And then finally, there's an interesting thought, and this is, I, I came across this in an old commentary by a chap with the surname of Maya, I forget his Christian name. He points out that if it had been intended that women should be appointed to the role of deacon as an officer in the church, where would be the obvious place to appoint them? Where do you have a situation where something like deacons are raised up, where there's loads and loads of women who need to be looked after and where you might think that women would do a particularly good job in that context? The answer is, of course, Acts chapter 6, where you've got a dispute precisely between different groups of women in the church. So if it was the case that the New Testament had in mind this idea of you can have men to do this task or women to do this task, the most natural thing in the world would be to appoint at least some women in Acts chapter 6, along with Stephen and Philip and so on. But there are seven men appointed. It almost looks slightly clunky when you think about it, doesn't it? I mean, like you've got, you've got all these ladies who are in some cases probably arguing quite bitterly and there's a significant tension in the church and real life-threatening issues in some cases because the distribution of food during a famine is at stake and you appoint seven guys to deal with it. I mean, what the heck's going on? Unless there was some reason in principle why the office ought to be held only by suitably qualified men. And I think that's another indication that that's the case. And of course, in reality, and this is where we get to why the qualifications for wives are so important. In reality, what's Philip going to do? Philip, one of the seven. We know he had four daughters he prophesied. Four or three? Four. Um, He's married. He's got to go and sort out a dispute between a couple of warring factions of Hebraic and Grecian widows in the church. Obviously, let me tell you what I would do if I had to go and sort out a quarrel between two ladies or two groups of ladies. I want to take my wife along to defend me. I'm joking, I'm joking. Okay? It, it would be obviously natural to involve your wife, if you were a deacon, in that ministry. And it's because the wives of deacons are in some degree expected to participate really quite closely in aspects of that diaconal ministry, that the qualifications for the wives are highlighted. Do you notice that there aren't qualifications for wives of overseers? Of overseers, of um, pastors or um, presbyters. Now, it's not because it doesn't matter if their wife is a believer or not. That's not the case. Obviously, it really matters. But it's as though the wives of deacons have potentially at least a really significant role to play kind of alongside their deacon husbands that might even go beyond what we might expect of a pastor's wife. My wife doesn't really help me with my sermon prep. 
He does occasionally help me. I mean, maybe you, think, maybe you do, actually, without me realizing it. Probably you do. Um, yeah, you probably do, actually. But <laughs> not with preaching them, right? So you know what I mean. And, but not necessarily in every situation. It might not even be the case here at All Saints. It might be the case that the particular responsibilities we've given to the deacons here at the present time don't necessitate the involvement of their wives. But it might equally be the case that in principle, because the, the ministry is a, not a teaching ministry, it's not a leading ministry, it's a practical service ministry. It's an, a care for the poor ministry. It's an oversight of people who are working within the church ministry. You might easily imagine that Mr. Whittlesey would depend on Mrs. Whittlesey in a really significant way. And who was it, just in case you are struggling to remember, who at the men's breakfast, was it the one before last or the one before that, who, who was here at, I don't know what time in the morning, making our burritos or um, tacos or whatever it was. Do you remember? Yeah. It was Mrs. Whittlesey. Sorry. Naming you. And I just thought, first I thought, oh my goodness, poor lady. Then I thought, actually, exactly, that's exactly what you'd expect to see. We've got a deacon who says, sign me up, and his wife comes along to help. So can you see, um, as we get to verse 11, we really are looking at qualifications that matter not just because of what it says about the deacon and his household, but because of what it says about this person who's likely to be significantly a part of the church's life. So let's just look at these character qualifications. And I want to scoot quite briefly through these because really the aim of the questions on pages three through six is to help you to interrogate them in a little bit more detail. There's some questions there specifically for wives on, um, on page six. Um, ladies, I, I'm going to um, uh, push you a little bit to scrutinise yourselves. And uh, I hope this isn't painful. I hope it's really helpful and revealing for you to consider to what degree you believe you display the following character traits and then to ask your husband, if you're married, whether he agrees with you. I think that might be really helpful. Um, and the aim here is not to beat people up or rule people out, but to give all of us specific, actionable areas of the Christian life where we could work on our godliness and maturity and so on. So we'll come to that in a few minutes. But let me first, uh, in a minute, I'll talk through those four headings. Carl, you had a hand up, so go ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that's, you, you, um, you should come up here and preach it with me because look, I'll show you my notes. Right, that's exactly the first thing to notice is that these are different, right, from what we've got with the men, with the, with the husbands, the deacons. There's some overlap, like you said, Carl, dignified, but these reflect the differences that pertain in two ways. First, a deacon is a deacon, 
and a deacon's wife is a deacon's wife. They're not actually the same role. So the, necessarily the qualifications are going to be different. But there's a deeper reason why they're different. They're different because they reflect... Um, let me just bite the bullet and be politically incorrect. They reflect the different ways in which men and women may demonstrate Christian maturity or immaturity. Uh, Paul is not being misogynistic to point out that there are differences between men and women. When he talks about certain kinds of false teachers who worm their way into households and gain control over weak-willed women, he's not being misogynistic. He's reflecting the created differences between men and women and also the ways in which those created differences can go wrong. In 1 Peter 3, when he speaks of wives as the weaker vessel, he's not insulting women. He's simply making an observation, not just about physical stature, but about temperament. And of course, there's a distribution of temperaments. There's, there are really, really, really robust women, and there are really, really, really fragile men, of course. But as a generalization, in an average marriage, the, the way that the emotional profile is going to be oriented is in a certain direction. And it could go wrong in certain ways, so the men need to learn to be gentle. Right? That, that's just the way it goes. And so here, what's Paul got in his mind as he's thinking about, okay, how could, um, what, what are we looking for in a, a lady who would just make an outstanding, faithful, godly uh, example of Christian faithfulness as the wife of a deacon? Who would be a great deacon? And dignified is the first thing. And <laughs> just like it was the first thing, when we were talking about the men. There's a, there is a feminine version of dignity, isn't there? I don't want to go over all the things that we talked about last week. Um, it's not gravitas. Um, gravitas is the thing that people attribute to somebody who has dignity. Gravitas cannot be striven for directly, uh, and, to, and to seek to cultivate it directly just makes young men pompous and old men ridiculous. Um, but there's a, there's a certain kind of man and a certain kind of woman who is, it's almost like there's a kind of beautiful, self-contained, contented, uh, stable wisdom there. Which is the female version of the man who, when he... You know, joins a conversation, illustration I used before, and there's a baby, there's a bunch of young guys, or the conversation's getting a bit sketchy, and this guy joins a conversation and everyone starts behaving themselves. Because he, he raises the tone. Isn't there a certain kind of female virtue in the face of which you wouldn't tell that joke? Even if you might do with somebody else where you'd watch your language, where you'd behave in a certain way because you, this particular character of lady draws out from others the traits that she, because of her dignity, is worthy of. Are you with me? Um, I was um, talking with a friend recently who had had a friend who'd visited All Saints. And I'm saying this to encourage you now. This is a really encouraging story to me. Um, 
So this friend of a friend visited All Saints, and he had come with uh, some negative preconceptions about Presbyterianism and Presbyterians. Uh, He'd only met theologically liberal and not very committed Reformed Presbyterians before. And he said he came here, and he was totally blown away. He said, and I said, wow, that's really encouraging. Anything particular? He said, well, the singing. Um, And I wasn't surprised at that. I mean, we all love our singing, right? Then he said something very interesting. He said, it's how the young people behaved so respectfully towards the adults and the older people. And I just thought, yeah, I noticed that. We noticed that when we came here, didn't we? And it was really challenging wonderfully challenging for us. Back in 2015, first time we came over to All Saints as a family. Um, and um, get rid of that fly. Gotcha. <laughs> there we are. Didn't President Obama want to do that live on TV when he was first? No, I'm not going to... Anyway. Um, where was I? Yes. Now, now, so what is it that makes a 12-year-old lad stand up straight and... and step to the side and hold the door open and say, good morning, ma'am. It is the godliness of that 12-year-old lad, yes. But it is also the dignity of that woman, that lady. And those things mutually reinforce. So a, a dignified mum actually cultivates that kind of respect in her children. Why do they praise her in the gates? Well, because she is dignified and worthy of praise. It would just be bizarre and unfitting for them to make the same kind of jokes about their mum as all their mates at the baseball club make about theirs. It's not, it wouldn't work. So dignified. Now, Kyle, your question, um, uh, drawing attention to the differences here, not slanderous. Let's just say it. Okay, women gossip more than men. There we are. I said it. Great man. No, just just true. Now, look, I learned this in my first pastoral post back in 2000 uh, under the uh, senior pastor of uh, Richard Cokin, wonderful, experienced pastor. And he had, I was there as an apprentice, which basically meant slave, putting lots of chairs away and and, uh, putting lots of tables out. And there were some ladies on this apprenticeship program who were training for various roles in children's ministry and women's ministry. It was an ecclesiology which differs somewhat from ours. They didn't have women officers, but they, they, had, they didn't keep the children in worship, so they generated a huge need for people to do, be kids and teenagers, teenage workers. And Anyway, so they had some ladies training for that role. And one of the things that they had them do was to... We had, they had us all do one-to-one Bible studies with other people in the church. So I would be doing one-to-one Bible studies with like four or five guys. And he would say, Richard said, okay, guys, you need about an hour or an hour and a quarter for a Bible study. Ladies, you need two hours. That's what he said. Now, maybe there are cultural things there because England and you know, we like to talk about the weather and everything. And, but he was just making the point that guys can just, on average, in general, they can just rock up at the coffee shop, say, hey, how you doing? Great, thanks. Okay, um, so where were we? Okay, First Timothy 2. And they just get straight down to it, whereas the ladies will just chat. And chat and chat and chat. And that's actually wonderful and fine. 
ladies are just chatty. Is that not right? Am I, am, am I, is my anthropology way off the mark here? Of course not. So you just come back from Summer Sanctus, right? And all the guys are throwing frisbees around and throwing footballs around and knocking each other over and wrestling and stuff, and you guys are just sitting in the sunshine chatting, right? <laughs> it's just like, I wasn't even there, and I know what you did, right? Now, obviously, this is a generalization. It's a gen- but Paul is giving general directions. So, um, ladies tend to be chattier. And every trait, every character trait, can be corrupted. What happens to chattiness when it becomes corrupted by sin? It becomes gossiping. It becomes slander. And of course men can slander each other. Yeah, of course men can slander each other. But it's just fascinating that in keeping with, let's just get out of our nervous post-21st century um, uh, anxiety about being labelled as misogynistic and just realise that this is just what the Bible says. Um, once we realise that, it's just profoundly helpful to have in black and white something that says, look, this is how you know whether a lady can control her tongue. And so there's a bunch of questions about gossiping and chattering at the back on the back page for you ladies to think about. Number three, sober-minded. Now, again, this is... Um, it's similar to the implications, at least, of verse 8, not addicted to much wine, which is the qualification for men. It would certainly include that. But sober-minded, I found this wonderful quotation in a book I read by Alexander Strauch called Minister of Mercy, the New Testament Deacon. Um, it's not a, not a thick book. It's like 140 pages, and I was looking at it today. And I just thought this is such a helpful summary of... Um, what sober-minded means. I wanted to um, write it out, and I'll read it to you now. Nephilos, which is the Greek word here translated sober-minded, can mean sobriety in the use of wine. And remember we talked last week about what, what's it, what is it particularly about alcohol that exposes any lack of self-control? What alcohol does is it increases the desire for more whilst diminishing the capacity for self-control at the same time. And so it really tests how good your brakes are on your behavior. If there's any sloppiness or fuzziness in the brakes, it's likely to be revealed in alcohol usage. Not always, because some people don't like drinking alcohol, but it's just a good test. But it's not just that. The quote continues. Here it is used... Sorry, is it? Well, meant to write, it is. Here it is used to mean the mental and emotional sobriety of a person's overall character, speech, and conduct, which, of course, includes sobriety in the use of wine. It denotes self-control, balanced judgment, and freedom from debilitating excesses. The word describes a person who is stable, circumspect, self-restrained, and clear-headed. Mental and emotional sobriety of character, speech, and conduct, self control, balanced judgment, stable, circumspect, self restrained, and clear headed. Now, I, that's not intended to scare you all off. Um, I think, actually, um, 
I'm looking around, and I think I, I know some of you ladies quite well. I think you have good grounds to be encouraged by by a lot of this. I don't know you as well as your husbands do. Um, I don't know as well know you as well as the Lord does, certainly. And some of the questions at the back are designed to encourage you first to scrutinize yourself and perhaps to expose any potential for growth here. And then to be able to identify, okay, here's an area in which I could prayerfully seek to grow. Wouldn't it be tragic? Wouldn't it be tragic if a, a growing and thriving and joyful church that desperately needed a handful more deacons was unable to appoint a man as a deacon whose wife was wonderful and he's wonderful but we can't describe her as self-restrained say wouldn't that be sad wouldn't it and and sad almost most of all for the lady concerned because look here's an opportunity with uh, um, Alexander Strouch Strouch is a very experienced teacher and pastor and author. He's in his 70s now, I think. He's, he's been around the block uh, many, many times. This is a man who knows what he's looking for. And I've, I've said sometimes to my theology students, a person is a book speaking. Oh, sorry, a, a book is a person speaking. That's the right <laughs> That's what you're like, what? Yeah, a, a book is a person speaking. Here is the aged pastor Strauk saying, ladies... Would you please aspire to stability and circumspection and self-restraint and clear-headedness so the church can thrive as your husband is appointed as a deacon and you seek to help him to serve? I hope that's something that you will grasp enthusiastically. And then finally, faithful in all things. Um, I, I don't know whether there's anything specific on Paul's mind there. I think it, it might just be one of those, he's, he's searching for a way to capture the idea of the ultimate safe pair of hands. Think, think back to Acts chapter 6. And imagine if, let's say, Philip's wife and Stephen's wife were really known for gossiping that sometimes got a little bit divisive. They're not a safe pair of hands in a place where you've got the Hebrew and Grecian widow problem. It's not, it's, not, it's not a safe place to leave that role. You can't give it to Stephen and you can't give it to Philip, not because of Stephen and Philip, but because of um, whatever their wives' names were. So faith, just a, the ultimate safe pair of hands, trustworthy in all those situations. All right. Briefly, let me say a word or two about the household and children requirements. Um, why? Come on, it's time some of you guys answered a question. Why do you think that managing their children and their households well, the household with everything that involves um, the financial stability the you get to places on time the uh, kids are in order and well behaved the 
the house has still got a roof on. Um, what, why do you think the management of the household is going to be a significant criterion for the selection of a deacon? Come on, somebody tell me. Yeah, go on, Anne. Right, very good. It actually relates um, to the wife, in a sense, as well as the, the husband. Um, uh, notice, of course, in verse 12, we're back with the deacons again, that deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children in their own household well. Um, so this is back on the... It's placing a responsibility on the husbands for that, isn't it? So it's saying something about their relationship with their wives. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah, uh, Josh. Well, if they're able to teach their children correctly, they're There might be a, a teaching element in it, and maybe there's a little bit of that because of Acts 6, and certainly Stephen and Philip ended up as teachers as well. They probably were already. Deacons aren't primarily teachers, though, are they? Think about it. No. So, um, yeah. yeah. Well, God is a God of order. Yes. Right, that's, that's wonderfully put. If you can manage your home and keep order there, you can take that into the church. And there's a bunch of questions about, I'm not, I don't want to know about your finances, I want you to think about your finances and the way you spend your money and the way that you organize family budgeting and so on. Would somebody else trust you with their money? I, had, I sat down with a member of the congregation and a deacon a few months ago, and, and the deacon gave a whole bunch of really, really valuable advice to this gentleman about budgeting and about I think it's exactly the kind of thing that deacons are in a position to do with practical experience that I don't have so much of. I haven't managed as much money as this deacon has. Well, would you, your, deacons are entrusted with the church's funds. You know, that's a significant... They, they make... Uh, Decisions about spending and so on and so forth. A couple of details here to highlight. Um, Husband of one wife. We've talked about this, haven't we? Um, Let me just um, sketch what I think is is going on here. And and again, this this will lead to some important practical implications for what we're looking for in a a deacon. It's not just an academic um, question. What does husband of one wife mean? Um, some have argued that it means uh, he's not got two wives at the same time, or three or four. Uh, well, that's true as far as it goes. Polygamy was known in the first century in some Jewish communities, and it was not tolerable. It never was tolerable from Genesis 2 onwards. A man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the word cleave, the vak, means it's the relationship that the Lord has with his people. It's a it's a, a relationship of single-minded fidelity. You can't cleave to two people at once. Polygamy is never a good thing. The whole book of Genesis is all about what happens when families go wrong, including via polygamy. I mean, it's just a disaster. Think of Solomon, you know, test case of what happens when you have more than one wife at once. So obviously a deacon mustn't be a polygamist, but it goes further than that. Some have suggested that it means a man must have been married only once. So that means that a, um, a divorcee who'd remarried... Or perhaps somebody whose wife had died and who had then remarried couldn't be a deacon. Now, I think that's 
wrong. It, no, it's certainly true that somebody who had been the at-fault party in a divorce might be disqualified, but that's not the same thing. Um, the reason it's wrong is that, in general, it's fine to remarry after widowhood, and it's actually fine to remarry in situations where you've been divorced and uh, you're either not at fault, perhaps your wife or husband had an affair and left you, it tragically happens, and, and you, you seek a divorce justly and you're free to remarry. There's no problem with that. In fact, Paul positively commends it. He encourages widows to remarry in 1 Corinthians 7. Um, and actually, in um, 1 Timothy 5, he, he's um, laying out the criteria on the grounds of which widows may be supported. And he says, well, we shouldn't, the church shouldn't give financial support to younger widows. Younger widows ought to remarry if they can. And so he can hardly then be commending something which he regards as a bad thing that might disqualify them from future supporters, older widows. You know, it, just, it just wouldn't make any sense. So in general, um, uh, though it's possible that somebody might have behaved in a way that disqualifies them in their marriage by, being divorced, by seeking a divorce unjustly, the mere fact of it is not disqualifying. Um, some have said that it means the man must be married and the single man therefore doesn't qualify. And... Uh, I don't think that's right either, although I think it's very <laughs> understandable why you might think so. Here's the, here's the thing. Look, look at, these, look at the qualifications. The qualifications that follow from verse 12, managing their children and their own household well, I take to be valuable because they're indicative of character traits. They're, they're like a, they're a way of, of getting to the heart of what a man is like. If you look at a man's household, his relationship with his wife, his children's behavior, you get a sense of what he's like. But it's not impossible, theoretically, for a man who has all those godly traits in place just never to have married. It would have been rare in the first century. But it's like the the, the normal signals that you'd rely on to demonstrate a man's godliness and maturity in relationship with others and in managing practical affairs, that they're, not, they're not available. Illustration. Let's imagine that um, there was a, a young person who came from, I don't know, a, a, my friend, Pastor Kip Chelishaw's church in Nairobi. Imagine there's a, a, a young lady who wants to come to a university in America and she's after a sports scholarship to help her to pay, Right? And, and she's got this form to fill in. It says, what's your 1,500-meter time, your 5K time, your 10K time? What's your one rep max in the deadlift? What, what's your score in a beep test? And she's like, well, I don't have access to a running track. I, I don't know what my 5K time is. I don't know what five kilometers is. Uh, we don't have a gym, so I've never done deadlifts. And what's the beep test? It's like, I don't know. Um, she might still be a really great runner, but you wouldn't have the normal ways of assessing that. So in a situation like in the church where you're looking for deacons and you want to be really careful about who you appoint, it would mean that you'd have to be extremely careful, not least because men who aren't married might in some circumstances tend to face 
some temptations of a sexual nature that men who are married wouldn't face. Now, with the rise of online pornography, I think that's probably less the case, but that's not because single men are less tempted. It's because married men are more tempted. So that doesn't really help. The point is simply this. I don't think it's the case that a single man who seems otherwise to really um, meet the biblical criteria should be excluded because he's single. I do think that he would acknowledge, if he's wise, that, yeah, he's not really been tested in the kind of way that a married man has been. And he hasn't got a wife to help him in that service. So we just need to bear that in mind and and to think carefully about how we do perform a wise evaluation of, of the man in question. Are you with me? Now, I don't think... This is something which is a, you know, it's not a pressing concern right now. We've not got like a single guy who's uh, been nominated as a deacon. We haven't got deacon nominations open yet. But if this did arise, it's something we just try and handle on that kind of case-by-case basis, I think. Yeah, Kyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that would be. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think you. I think yeah, everything you say is right. I think there's if. I wouldn't think ill of somebody. Let's suppose, I mean, hypothetical situation, then we'll move on. But hypothetical situation, we have a guy and everyone thinks, like, he's just a fantastic guy. He's 50 years old. Maybe he's been a deacon at another church. He moves here. And we're like, well, he's nominated. If, if two or three people said, now, my reading of the text is that though he's fantastic, he's not qualified because I read this, he has to be married. I, I wouldn't think ill of them for, for voting against him. I think it's just something we'd, we'd want to talk through as a church. And we'd probably want to try and get as much on the same page as we could. And I, I recognise it's, it's an issue where conscientious and thoughtful Christians might either have different views of interpreting the text, or more, more likely they would have, they'd make a different judgment in the individual case. Beca- precisely because a single guy doesn't have the, the testing ground that a married man has. Marriage places a strain on a man, doesn't it? I mean, it's a wonderful blessing. But it does put you in a place where you, you need to learn new relational and practical skills to, to, to be a good husband. Uh, Aaron's over there. How long have you been married? Like a year? A year. And he's not only like, like yeah, I'm learning, learning fast. Right. Yeah. So that, I think and that's it's valuable. Yeah, Justin. I think there's something about this Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you have a wife and kids and nobody's watching yeah, how yeah. you uh, are, all you get to see is whether or not the household is maybe running well mm. or the children do behave. Yeah. What's behind that is a lot of getting up in the morning, uh, sitting down to listen. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, you know, the, the service of laying yourself down, giving of yourself to these yes. to the to the wife and children. To your wife and children, yeah. So, yes. I mean, the... Um, just to say the conscious 
the conscious part about that, the testing realm, mm, uh, mm, for a band, yes, yes. It, it's more than just a, see if you have it in you. It is the thing that makes you who you are. Right, yeah, exactly. So it's both a test and a thing by which you're trained. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, it, the, the more I think about this, I, I, I think exegetically, I mean, I, I don't think it requires it, as in this is what the text says, but I think it's, it's so hard to imagine being as confident in a single man as in a married man for all the reasons you say, simply because a wise single man would probably recognize that, yeah, there's tons of stuff I've just never had to dip, don't deal with because I've never had kids, never been married. I'm, I, so maybe it's not wise for me to take this role because I don't know whether it would be good. We shouldn't be hasty in the laying on of hands and I can serve in other ways. And that's actually fine. It's actually a, a wise way of dealing with that kind of uncertainty rather than jumping ahead. And There's no church that needs a deacon so badly that it can afford to make a mistake in appointing one, um, which is why we want to be slow and careful. Um, what I think it means, just getting to the point where we really see... Oh, yeah, Todd, pardon me, yeah. Uh, so let's say there was a church hearing the same stuff that we're hearing from you. And, you know, as we started off this study, the recommendations or the encouragement is for everybody to fill out all of these requirements in their lives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's just say the Lord gave that and you had... 50 men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You uh, meet the requirements, yeah. Yeah. Meeting each, each these, uh, uh, yes, yes. Is, would we name all 50 men deacons? Yeah, good question. Are the requirements coterminous with, with the appointment? Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think that's great. So what separates out someone yeah. who fulfills these requirements because we've listened to? Maybe that's not a good person for... Right, yeah, absolutely. No, that's really good. So um, the general question, just repeat it for the folks at home, um, both the deacon and elder roles, what would you do in a situation where there are more people qualified, like 50 people qualified? Would you just appoint them all because they all make the grade? And I think behind this, you'd, 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 you'd place this in the context of 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, and, and 13 for that matter, about the function of gifts in the church being to serve the body. So if what the body needs is 50 deacons for a church of 5,000, or for 10 churches of 100, then yeah, we need 50 deacons. But if what the church needs is 12 deacons, then let's appoint 12 deacons. In other words, I, I wouldn't say that... The, the meeting of these qualifications places an obligation on the church to appoint a particular man. What it does is it means that the church may do so if they need to do so. That's what I'm... So quick follow-up. I think where I'm, where I'm, more where I'm going is these, these um, descriptions of character and household don't really speak to function at all. They don't really speak to what the function is of any one particular Right. That's assumed based on history and where we're at in... An Old Testament background. Yeah, and the the needs of the church. Correct, yes. So you might have, I mean, my question is, is is it possible for the, you know, lots of men to be qualified for this and not necessarily be a good deacon? Oh, I'm with you, I'm with you, yes. Because those those expectations or those gifts or whatever it is that you want to call it aren't necessarily 
clear on the surface. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yes, it's so, so, so these are the, the foundational moral requirements for which if a man falls short of, he may not be appointed. Um, but it's very possible to imagine, um, let's say, somebody who um, meets all these requirements but has poor English or is from a culture that is very, very different from ours and, and would struggle to uh, intuit his way around the relationships. Or what we need is somebody to do a lot of financial stuff and this guy is great, but he's not great with figures. Um, absolutely, yeah. So uh, there's, these are the requirements on which we'd then say, okay, um, gifts and needs in Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12 kind of ways. Now, in our context, we, 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 education levels are so high and general competence levels, frankly, among all of the people here are so high that we can kind of assume that most of you could learn most of the things you needed to do. Right? If, we, if we bought a new um, financial package for handling church finances and we appointed one of you guys who's not a deacon as a deacon, you could learn how to use it. Yeah, you could. I mean, it might be a struggle. It might be easier for somebody else, but you could do it. Um, in many contexts in history, and certainly, so certainly in many contexts in history, and even in some parts of the world now, that's, that's not true. I had a friend who had a, he was an Anglican, that he had a church warden who, um, <laughs> this was a, a kind of a fairly rough part of London, okay, east end of London, and uh, my friend was the vicar. He's going through the checkbook for the church and he finds a check that's got his signature on that he's sure he didn't write. And the, so he went to the church one and said, do, do, do you know anything about this? He said, oh, yeah, 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 I did it. He's like, what do you mean you did it? He said, well, like, you weren't around, so I just, I just did your signature. I copied it from one of the other, you know, kind of pressed through from one of the other checks. So I just copied it. And my friend was like, <laughs> like, you can't, you can't do that. Now, this guy had just come from a rough background, and that was just, that was just normal practice in, you know, in those parts of London where business is done in that way. Now, clearly that guy's going to struggle to function in quite a lot of different contexts, not because he's ungodly so much as he just doesn't have the right kind of intuitions about how things ought to be done. So, yeah, and there's more to that, I guess, but. Um, let, me, let me just um, push on through to the end of here and make a couple of final comments, then we can pick up some questions. I'll tell you what I think it does mean, and this is where, um, well, there's just some op- opportunity for reflection on the part of the men as well. Really what the phrase says, if you just grab your Bibles again, it says literally, uh, a one-woman man. And it means, I think, in Greek, what the phrase means in English metaphorically one woman man like he's either married to and devoted to or not yet married to but will be keeping himself for one woman it's about sexual continence and restraint and fidelity it's a guy who's not at all. One of the ways that we know that this is the case 
is, again, if you look in 1 Timothy 5, um, verse 9, it says, let a, woman, let, let a widow be enrolled. This is in the list of widows who are to be provided for financially by the church. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years age, having been the wife of one husband. Well, it doesn't say the wife of one husband. It says a one-man woman. It's the reverse phrase. So a widow can be a one-man woman. And it's perfectly reasonable that she might have been widowed once, followed Paul's instructions as a young woman, got married again, been widowed again, and still be a one-man woman. A woman who, at every point of her life, was devoted to the one man she should have been devoted to. She was sexually faithful. And so one woman man means the same thing. It means if you're married, you have eyes only for your, for your wife. Um, and with all that that implies in today's world, some of which is interrogated in the questions that follow. Um, verse 13, briefly, is really intriguing. And I, again, I'm, I, I'm not 100% sure what, I mean, what, what it means. Um, uh, but... I'll read it. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Um, I won't go into the, the, the exegetical weeds on this one, but suffice it to say that the, the good standing for themselves is not about uh, status. It's more about um, a reputation that they acquire in the act of deaconing. So to paraphrase, it's something like this. Those who serve well gain a good standing as they are deaconing. They gain a good reputation by virtue of their deaconing. And also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I think that's probably a reference to the sense of... um, graciously God-given almost uh, accomplishment or maybe that's the wrong term a, a sense of yeah I'm I'm that was hard work that was a that was a job well done that there is a behind this is a is a um, whole discussion about the doctrine of assurance which we have to say for another day but actually good good deaconing uh, uh, is the fruit of Christ's work in us. Whether we're capital D deacons or lowercase d deacons. And so, of course, therefore, somebody who's been a faithful servant can, with humility and gratitude to God for his Spirit's work in them, look at what he's done in them and say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have a sense of confidence in my faith in Christ. Because I can see what God has been doing in me. I think that's the direction that verse 13 is headed. Um, We can talk about that if you'd like to. But what I'd really like to get you to do in the the few minutes that remain, we have 10 minutes left. Uh, I have a bunch of questions for you, and there are even more here. And there's not a snowball's chance in hell of you getting through all these thoughtfully in the time that you have available. So let me just first encourage you to take this away with you and um, I I would really appreciate it especially those of you who are uh, older, uh, especially those of you who are married, who might reasonably be 
asked at some point to consider this position, to take this away and look at it together with your wife or husband if you're married. There's a bunch of questions from married men, specifically. There's a bunch of questions on the next page from question 12 onwards for fathers. Obviously, these are overlapping categories. Some people will be both. From question 20, there's a bunch of questions for single, for, for all men, including single men and married men. Um, so if you're, if you're single, like all you young people, um, men certainly, and actually women, could valuably reflect beginning at uh, question 20 down to question 24. But perhaps the ladies, uh, whether you're married or not, might um, be most helped by reflecting on the questions on uh, the last page, which take a slightly different form. I'd like you to consider, if you would, to what degree you believe you display the following character traits. Always, quite often, sometimes, rarely or never. Discreet, calm, prone to excessive consumption of alcohol, thoughtful, slow to speak, gossipy, talkative, reserved, cheerful in public but grumpy in private, prone to complain about others, prone to nag your husband, prone to nag your children, quick to give your opinion, able to cope well with sudden changes in plan, prone to large emotional swings, tearful, willing to serve without being recognised publicly, happy to be the centre of attention, offended by careless or thoughtful, thoughtless words from others, readily able to see God's kindness even in painful and frustrating situations, able to cope well with your children when your husband is absent, emotionally robust, faithful in scripture reading and prayer. Some of those are positive traits, some of them are negative. Some are, well, they can be good, they can go sideways. And all of them, I think, may in different ways for different people give you something to chew over. And that's my goal at this stage. So I'd encourage you, if you wouldn't mind, if you're here as a couple, uh, pick a bit you'd like to look at together. Um, Maybe you want to look at the last section. If you're here with your wife, just look at that together. Or maybe you want to look at separate portions as your fancy takes you. Um, But use this next 10 minutes or so, uh, uh, six minutes or so, as, as you see fit, to begin the process of thinking through these questions. And then we'll come back together just to conclude at the end. Thank you. Okay, everybody. Uh, I have left you a completely inadequate amount of time to come close to skimming through these questions. And uh, in fairness, I knew that was going to be the case. So uh, I hope you will find it helpful to take these away with you. Um, all of our teaching at All Saints is designed to accomplish things practically in our lives and in our life as a church community together. But this, more than most, we really are going to need to find some deacons this year, next year, sometime, and not never. So, um, please, for the sake of the church for the sake of the glory of Christ, for the sake of Fort Worth, for the sake of people who don't yet know Jesus, um, I urge you to give yourself to continuous, ongoing reflection and study of these questions with the diligence that you've shown tonight and in the last couple of weeks in coming here. Um, I thank God for you all. 
and um, very excited about the prospect of our diaconate growing as the church continues to grow in years to come. It's quarter past. I'm going to let you go. Those of you at home, uh, thank you for joining us. Hope you found it helpful. And uh, as ever, if you have any questions, don't hesitate to give me a call. And um, uh, some of you, uh, you may find that I ping you a quick email or something in the next few weeks and say, hey, I'd like to meet with you and your wife and see how you found that series of Bible studies. Let's pick up the conversation from there. And um, if that doesn't happen to you, you haven't sinned, you know, just keep doing the right thing. Keep growing in faithfulness. Uh, keep getting yourself into a position where you can serve the church in whatever way you may be called upon to do so. Let's pray. Merciful Father, thank you for this privilege of being part of a church with all the right kind of problems, the problems that come from uh, growth in number, uh, widespread, dare I say, universal desire to grow in maturity, to reach out more and more effectively to the community around us, to seek to live for Christ uh, robustly and faithfully in every area of life. These desires place demands on all of us, Father, which your Spirit is more than able to meet according to his power and your grace to us. So please would you fill us afresh with your spirit and we pray that uh, from our number would arise uh, men who uh, are able to serve uh, as deacons and thus to be a blessing to the congregation in future years. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, everybody, very much indeed. Pastor Shaw, what would you like us to do with the tables and chairs?